Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for August 28th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about some breaking Star Wars news and catch up on uh, what we've been up to in the water cooler. This is Slash Home Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Home Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Writers Y-Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Uh, so, uh, Brad is not with us today. He is still, uh, sick and recovering, but, uh, he will be back hopefully soon. We wish him well. Let's start off with some breaking Star Wars news, and that is one of the doctors is joining Star Wars Episode Nine HT. Tell us about it. So Star Wars Episode Nine has added a new cast member to its cast, and that is Matt Smith in a quote-unquote key role in the newest uh, installment of the Star Wars saga. So it's undisclosed whether what he'll be playing or whether he'll be playing a character in the First Order or the Resistance, but this won't be Matt Smith's first sort of uh, brush with space. He had his breakout role in Doctor Who, which is a long-running British uh, sci-fi series in which he played the titular Doctor, a time-traveling alien uh, who, uh, you know, t- traveled through time and space, saved galaxies, saved worlds, all that jazz. And uh, yeah, he was also my favorite doctor, so I just want to give a shout out to that. 11th Doctor fans, yeah. So Matt Smith <laughs> is joining episode nine. Uh, we don't know what role it will be yet, but considering the franchise's sort of track record with casting uh, pasty British guys, it will probably be someone in the First Order. <laughs> Yeah, that would make sense, especially since Hux has kind of been turned into a buffoon uh, in his role in Last Jedi. Uh, but, uh, I mean, Skynet has infiltrated the Star Wars universe, guys. <laughs> yes, his other sci-fi uh, <laughs> role. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to, uh, instead of react to this, because I, I think we probably have all the same reaction, I wanted to uh, go go along uh, the, the, the circle here and... Find out what your crazy, insane theory of what kind of character Matt Smith might be playing in Star Wars Episode Nine. Let's start off with Jacob. I think everybody's going to have some 
wacky villain ideas. So I'm going to say he's a totally normal dude, totally normal heroic resistance officer who has no quirks about him. He just looks <laughs> like Matt Smith. And it'll be against casting because Matt Smith always gets cast as weird-looking, angry sci-fi dudes. So just cast him as a normal, average, ordinary guy who says, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and gets the job done. HT, who, who do you think he's going to play? I think he's going to be one of Ray's three potential dads who she invites to a Greek island. <laughs> and they start singing ABBA songs. Or maybe Ray's uncle. Who knows? Chris, do you have any suggestions? <laughs> I didn't prepare for this. I have nothing funny or snappy to say. <laughs> so just pretend I said something really hilarious right here and uh, move on. <laughs> that is so funny, Chris. Now, uh, going to Ben. Ben, what is your suggestion? Um, I was going to say Constable Zuvio because that's my go-to for any ridiculous <laughs> Star Wars casting these days. Um, but I'm actually just looking looking at a picture of Donald Gleason right now, and I feel like maybe uh, – uh, Matt Smith could play his brother. Um, the two of them, I mean, as HT mentioned, sort of pasty white British dudes. So <laughs> I, I feel like maybe, uh, or, or at least uh, dudes from the UK, I think uh, Donald Gleason is Irish. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think maybe there there could be uh, some sort of family relation going on there. I mean, we all know how much the Star Wars universe loves to close its ranks and not explore and yeah. take the opportunity to uh, to spread things out and, and you know, just make everybody related to each other. So who knows? We'll see what happens. Yeah, and I, I know everybody online is probably saying Ray's parent, Ray's dad, but, you know, he's within like a decade of uh, age range. So I don't think that's, that you know theoretically uh realistically possible uh i'm gonna for my ridiculous su- uh, suggestion i'm gonna i'm gonna re- reiterate one that we saw online from andrew todd who noted that matt smith's bone structure looks that of a younger less scarred snoke <laughs> i know you guys all hate this because we talked <laughs> about it in the slack channel i hate it too because uh they've already said that snoke is an alien he's not human sized and it just I don't know. I don't even think his face looks like Snoke, but but you never know. It's J.J. Abrams, right? Yeah, and Andrew's friend the site is a smart guy. He's probably just joking, but I feel it's worth bringing up. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on to the actual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. Uh, let's start off with uh, Jacob, because Jacob, uh, you took a few days off. It was your birthday over the weekend. Uh, tell us about it. What have you been up to? Yeah, it was the big three zero. So I'm officially an adult now. Um, so my wife and I, we live in Austin, but we every year or so go to San Antonio to visit the Riverwalk. This is a quick you know, weekend vacation. And those of you who've never been to San Antonio or familiar with it, the Riverwalk is a it's literally uh, the river. The city's built around um, a river and they've built restaurants and establishments and bars. So you pretty much walk along the water. There's water taxis. There's water tours. And you just um, enjoy the sights and sounds of um, being waterfront while you are um, eating Mexican food, more or less. That's what the Riverwalk is. And actually, there's tons of hotels everywhere. And we got a suite at a uh, at a reasonably nice hotel. Uh, and I, since it was my birthday weekend, I said I wanted to do all the tacky tourist things that I enjoy. It's my uh, the same gene that lets me love theme parks, also has me love bad museums. So uh, our hotel is about a one-minute walk from the Alamo, you know, the historical site that San Antonio is most famous for. And because the Alamo attracts thousands of visitors constantly, like all the time, there's always a line to get in to see this, you know, um, memorial to men who died bravely in the battlefield. Right across the street has sprung up an entire 
strip of tourist traps and tacky museums to try to drag away uh, Alamo visitors. And so normally each of these uh, uh, museums and tourist traps cost about 20 bucks a pop to get in. But if you spend $56, you get in all six of them uh, for a one ticket. Uh, so we did that. It was me, my wife, and two friends who drove up from Austin to experience it with, with me. And we did a terrible wax museum, uh, Louis, Louis Tussauds Wax Museum, not even Madame Tussaud, Louis Tussauds Wax Museum. I, I, I don't museum. think I've ever seen a good wax museum, by the way. <laughs> well, this is probably the worst one. I've been here before, and it's not a great wax museum. The celebrity selection is odd. Some of the sculptures are questionable. Like, they're Indiana Jones, they're Harrison Ford. Once you get clearly is a Charles Bronson that they redressed in a fedora. <laughs> um, it is noteworthy that the, the basement uh, is a horror section. This very dark maze full of strobe lights and and dark corners and special effects. And as a child, when I first visited this museum back in 1997, when I first moved to Texas, this thing terrified me. Like I had nightmares about it for years. And so returning to it. As an adult, it was actually really fun to, to conquer the, those fears. Uh, so next door to the Wax Museum is a Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, which is actually, you know, a lot cooler. It's still a little loud and abrasive compared to, you know, actual museum. Uh, but it's full of oddities and weirdness and artifacts. Uh, like, they have they have the car that um, Lee Harvey Oswald's neighbor drove him to the JFK assassination in. It's it's there. If you ever want to touch the car that, that drove <laughs> oh, him. Oh, that famous car. Yes. <laughs> But it's like full, you know, full of weird stuff, like a massive twenty-foot Eiffel Tower made out of toothpicks, um, a megalodon um, jaws, um, just all kinds of bizarre weirdness. My favorite thing there is a authentic, in quotation marks, uh, 18th century vampire hunting kit. It was the kind of thing people actually buy from shops in the 1700s. It had a pistol, a crucifix, garlic, all kinds of different chemicals, all, a holy water vial. It was just this really kind of amazing piece of historical weirdness that I loved. It really made me want to watch a vampire movie uh, set in the 1700s where somebody used this actual kit. Uh, so yeah, moving on from that, there's also a Guinness World Records Museum, which is fine. Uh, a terrible 4D theater, which is a, a nightmare. And if I had I paid actual money for it, <laughs> I would have been angry as hell. Um, finally, I went to uh, Ripley's Haunted Adventure, which is a year-round haunted house right across the street from the Alamo. Uh, which is so tacky, uh, but that's why I love it. And this is where I used to work. Uh, back in 2006, my first job post-high school was working as an actor in this haunted house. And I've written about it before. I wrote about it uh, for Esquire back before I joined Slash Film. And we're we're going to have house... to put that story in the show notes. Oh, yeah, we will. It's, 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 I really like that article. I usually don't like things I write. <laughs> uh, but this haunted house, even though it's been over a decade since I've been in there, I still knew where all the trap doors were. I still knew where all the scares were. I still... Um, I still was able to confidently walk through the house and count down the seconds to most of the scares because almost very little had changed. <laughs> so it was a very nostalgic, fun experience for me. And yeah, that was. We'll talk about more of this trip elsewhere in the water cooler. But those are the the, the things that like, I was adamant we do and I had a great time doing them. Well, very cool. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I've been up to over the last week. Um, when I was visiting New York a few months ago, one of the things I wanted to do was they had this great Jim Henson exhibit uh, over in Brooklyn at uh, one of the museums there. Unfortunately, uh, the people I was traveling with were not as excited about that as I was, and we didn't get to visit it. But uh, it did come to California in a smaller extent, I think, uh, it, it, over at uh, the Skirball, which is this uh, Jewish museum. Uh, it's called the Jim Henson Exhibition. Imagine 
Imagination Unlimited. And I got to visit that over the weekend. I think it's only going to be there for another week or two. So if you're listening to this and you're in Southern California and you like uh, the Muppets or Jim Henson, uh, you should go check this out while you still have the chance. I will say we got there like a half an hour after opening, which was 10 a.m. on a Saturday, and we had to wait two hours uh, to buy tickets and to, to get into this exhibition. And it was probably the, a bad decision to go on the weekend. Uh, I mean, we don't re- a lot of people don't have the choice. You know, they work during the week, but it was pretty crowded. Uh, it, it, it was great to see some of the original Muppet, uh, you know, puppets uh, there. And it, it is a great overview of Jim Henson's life and career. I, I almost wish that somewhere they had like actually build a Jim Henson museum. Like I've been to uh, they have the Walt Disney Museum in, in Sandy, uh, San Francisco which is just fantastic. And I feel like uh, someone like Jim Henson deserves like a grand style museum in that fashion. Um, It is interesting though, how museums have kind of um, adapted to this like Instagram culture. Like everything is a photo op. Do you know what I mean? Like it's no longer, you know, learning. It's now like, you know, take a photo with this, you know, Kermit puppet, take a photo in this location from the Muppets uh, tonight uh, studio. So it's uh, very Instagrammed out. Uh, But uh, yeah, so if you are a fan of Henson and the Muppets, go check it out. Uh, It's over near the Getty uh, Museum. I didn't even know about the Skirball Museum until uh, this came here. But um, what else have I been up to? You know, every week I go to the Magic Castle. I'm a member of the Magic Castle. Uh, I don't usually talk about that because I know people don't want to hear about it. Uh, but uh, this week I was there and I ran into uh, Caesar, the guy that created One Second Every Day, which I've tried to do a number of years and I always fail because, I don't know, capturing one second of my day seems to be too much work. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know it takes only one second. Or it might be the fact that, like, you know, working at home, when you work at home, sometimes you don't leave your house for uh, for many days. So, like, my one second became just my dogs. <laughs> it was kind of, I don't know, depressing, I guess. Uh, but, I, I don't know. Anyways, uh, it was great to run into Caesar there. Uh, uh, he's an inspirational guy. He's given a TED Talk. I was able to do some magic for him and impress him. But anyways, uh, what I wanted to talk about is uh, at the Magic Castle, I got to see a magician named John Armstrong, uh, who's also a friend. He has been on this podcast in the past at Comic-Con. He is a great magician. He was performing at the WC Fields Bar downstairs. And usually when people perform at the W.C. Fields bar at the Magic Castle, they have like a 20, 25 minute set and then they, you know, take 20 minutes off and then they perform their set again. Uh, John Armstrong uh, knows so much magic that he performed for four hours almost straight, not repeating a trick once. And I sat there for the majority of it, uh, just watching in amazement that uh, someone knows that much because, you know, I'm currently trying to put together a a show of tricks that I can play 15, 20 minutes, and I'm having a hard time coming up with a good 15, 20 minutes. And this guy has an amazing four hours, uh, which is not just card stuff. Like he does, uh, he's a movie geek. So he uh, incorporates that into his show. Like he has this trick. It's usually the SpongeBob trick, which I think probably everybody has seen before, but he does it with these sponge gizmos that he bought at Comic Con. 
and then obviously you add water and they multiply. Uh, it, just a lot of fun. And I guess the day after I was there, uh, Kevin Feige was there. And John Armstrong, a huge Marvel fanatic, was able to do uh, some magic for Kevin. Uh, j- just uh, pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I guess that rounds up what I have been up to. Uh, ben, what have you been up to? Uh, last week, I had the opportunity to go to London for a work trip, and I can't talk about why yet, but I'm sure I'll be able to to do that one day in the in the future. Um, so, uh, you know, stay tuned for that. But this was my first time in London, and um, there are a lot of uh, set visits and stuff that happened there. So I figured I, I might be there one day. But uh, yeah, I finally got to sort of check that off the bucket list and, and um, go and explore. And I had probably in total about, I don't know, six or seven hours to myself uh, of free time where I wasn't, you know, doing work stuff. So uh, I tried to (laughs) to take as much advantage of that as I could. I just like, you know, took uh, trains and the tube and Ubers everywhere and was just like, you know, bouncing from tourist spot to tourist spot. I I saw Buckingham Palace and uh, I walked like 35, 30 minutes probably out of my way to see Big Ben. and of course, it was under construction, which I had no idea about. And apparently it's not even going to be uh, unveiled to the public again for another like two and a half years or something. So I think uh, I, I, I love that photo of you on Instagram of you in front of a <laughs> bunch of construction. Yeah, it's, uh, it was pretty sad. I was like, I was disappointed, you know, because with, with such a, a limited amount of time. Those 30 minutes or an hour really round trip, I could have spent going somewhere where I actually could have seen something good. But anyway, uh, I I actually managed to walk down and see the uh, MI6 building, which was is you know heavily featured in uh, a number of the James Bond movies. So that was really cool. Um, I went to uh, 221B Baker Street, the uh, the home of Sherlock Holmes, and they have a museum set up there that's kind of reminiscent. It sounds like a li- it's probably a step up from what Jacob was just talking about with those wax museums. <laughs> but there are a lot of uh, wax figures there, and most of them look pretty terrible. And it's it's pretty cheap uh, in terms of like some of the presentation that they have there. But there's also a lot of really cool stuff. It's like a three or four story uh, building in the actual location on Baker Street. And they have a really nice gift shop. But in the actual place itself, it's it's decked out to look like um, what uh, Holmes and Watson's apartment would have looked like back in the, you know, whenever the the period that they were supposedly uh, supposedly living there. I think that there's a plaque on the wall that says that they were there from uh, 1881 to 1904. So, um, yeah, I got a bunch of uh, photos and stuff, and that was a, a pretty cool experience. And then later on, um, I, I had a chance to walk all the way across Tower Bridge, which was cool. And then I, one of the last things that I wanted to mention was um, I, I went to this bar, uh, and I was like, I was by myself. I, I knew a couple people on the on the trip with me, but. Um, I was just roaming around solo in the in the streets and because of the jet lag and the way that my flights were working out I went back to my hotel had dinner and my hotel was like I don't know 30 minutes outside of London and at, I don't know, 7 or 8 p.m. or something, I was like, I don't want to just sit in the hotel room all night and then get up and take an early flight. I'm just going out. So I, I went back into the city and I went to this bar called Sky Garden. And if you guys are in the London area ever, 
you should go to this bar because it's one of the most amazing places, uh, you know, drinking establishments I've ever been to. It is incredible. It's on the 35th floor of a skyscraper. And oh, I've been here. Oh, you have. Okay, it's cool. really like modern and fancy. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is fantastic. Like the drinks were pretty good. And but the atmosphere is incredible. It's like this whole thing is it, there's like a, you can walk all the way around the outside of the building. There's a 360 degree view of all of London laid out in front of you. And I was there at like midnight. So it was dark and the lights were twinkling and it was amazing. And it was like this magical experience. So, uh, I mean, people, you should Google Sky Garden London and just look at some of the pictures from this place because it is, it's truly breathtaking, um, the views and stuff that were up there. So if you're ever there, I cannot recommend that place uh, highly enough. So yeah, that was my uh, whirlwind trip to London. I was only there for like, I don't know, two and a half days or something. But, um, but yeah, it was pretty great. And hopefully I can come back on the show and, and talk about what I was actually there to see one day in the future. Yeah, uh, I'm amazed that you accomplished all that in the little amount of time that you had outside of your whatever you did, uh, <laughs> because I know on these trips, uh, I, I always make these grand plans. You know, I fly into London, you, you're on set or something the next day and then you have that night and the next morning and you like i'm always like oh i'm gonna pack out with stuff and then like the jet lag hits you and you're like ah, i'm just gonna stay in the hotel <laughs> yeah. um okay anyways let's move on to what we've been reading ht uh you started reading sharp objects yeah so i had never read sharp objects despite being a fan of jillian flynn's other book uh gone girl um and i'd actually been kind of wary of reading sharp objects before uh watching this the hbo series which i really loved i'll talk about a little bit about that later though um but i picked it up after i'd finished watching the the series finale and i kind of came about this because um with gone girl i had read the book first and watched the movie second and so i was kind of primed for the twist that happens midway through the film and I liked both the ways that they both played out, and I feel like I like them I like both the book and the movie equally. Like they're both masterfully written and masterfully like directed. But I wondered if I would have enjoyed the twist more going in blind, and so that's why I was kind of wary about reading Sharp Objects before uh, going into the miniseries, despite the miniseries itself being somewhat not really about the mystery so much as it is about the interiority of Amy Adams' character, Camille. So I've started reading Sharp Objects now, and I'm really enjoying it. And um, it's a, I'm really surprised that was Jillian Flynn's debut novel, actually, because I, I quite like it a lot, and it's just, it just feels very fully formed for her as an author. Very cool. Sharp objects. You can buy that in any bookstore. Uh, ben, what have you been reading? Yeah, so right before I went to London, I wanted to read one of the Sherlock Holmes stories that was written by uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I'd never written, uh, I'm sorry, I'd never read any of them before. I've seen a ton of Sherlock Holmes related movies and, you know, the BBC series and all that stuff, but I'd never actually read any uh, Holmes books. So I read the first, uh, I guess, and it's almost like a short story. It's very short. It's called A Study in Scarlet, and that's the first one that that was ever written and I years ago I bought a huge um, collection of Sherlock Holmes stories in this really uh, ornate um, <laughs> hardback book cover kind of thing and it, it looks great on a shelf and I've just been trying <laughs> to find uh, the, you know the time or the excuse to actually pull that down and start reading it and I figured a, a trip to London and I knew that I wanted to go visit 221B Baker Street uh, was the perfect excuse to do it so yeah I read A Study in Scarlet which is um, it's pretty good I mean it was written in 1887 and it feels very modern still um, the the language is I mean it's really easy to read a lot of 
stuff from that time period, I, I sort of have that that language barrier where it, it takes me a minute to sort of get through and and really, um, you know, grapple with and, and uh, get into the flow of reading something that was written that long ago. But this one was a, a really easy read. Uh, it does that thing where it tells you one half of a, uh, a murder mystery investigation. And then all of a sudden, like, I guess in the next chapter, it starts a whole different story in an entirely separate kind of uh, area. And you're like, wait, how in the hell are these two threads going to combine? But of course they do. And uh, and it, it's very entertaining. So I just wanted to give a quick shout out to A Study in Scarlet written in 1887 in case anybody, uh, you know, uh, in case Sir Arthur Conan Doyle needs any more hype about him. But Hey, Ben, I just want to say that um, that story is so interesting to me because Doyle clearly wrote it, not realizing Sherlock Holmes and Watson would be recurring characters. <laughs> yeah, uh, but like, if you enjoyed that, you're in for a treat because um, once he starts realizing who these characters are and that they're going to stick around for a while, the rest of his stories and novels um, double down on that, and they get so good. If you enjoyed this, you're in for a real treat as you read deeper into that. Awesome. Well, to tell me this, uh, Ben. Uh, you know, with a lot of stuff like that, a lot of classic material, movies, books. Uh, you know, so much has been copied and you know emulated from those kind of classics did you feel like you kind of knew where the mystery was going ahead of time or was it still like as gripping as you know if it was an original book today um it was still pretty gripping and and weirdly i think this story has been adapted a bunch of times before and i've seen a lot of the adaptations before but i didn't (laughs) i didn't remember the specifics of exactly how the the uh mystery unfolded at the end which was really great i mean it was like the one time when my bad memory actually served me well because i was reading it as if it was fresh but yeah the only thing that really sort of felt familiar was the idea was the structure of it like i mentioned like you know it it tells one part of the story and then it starts with this whole other thing. And I feel like that is, I don't, I'm not sure how common that was before 1887 or if, or if uh, Doyle was the one who sort of like pioneered that, uh, (laughs) that literary technique. I'm sure somebody had done that before, but, um, but yeah, that's the only thing where it sort of, um, that feels like it's been done to death uh, since then, but it still reads really well um, today. So, yeah. And uh, Jacob, you've been reading Kitchen Confidential, which I think was going to be adapted into a movie by John Favreau years ago, but never happened. Uh, but you read the book, The Source uh, Hero. Yeah, I was one of the many people who, uh, when Anthony Bourdain uh, passed away, uh, went on Amazon and bought this book. It's his, his first book, uh, his first work of nonfiction, and published in 2000. And I was familiar with him as a TV uh, character or a TV uh, personality, but never actually read any of his books. And this book... Um, is incredibly entertaining. I cracked open on my vacation thinking I'd read a chapter here and there, ended up reading almost the entire thing uh, in my hotel room. And it's, it rotates between Bourdain's uh, memoir, which is sort of his journey from uh, being a told junkie uh, and, and struggling chef to being just a struggling chef, and uh, with uh, chapters that sort of not, not necessarily expose, but are brutally honest about life in the restaurant business and what it's like to be a chef, a cook, and an owner of a restaurant. And it's hilarious, and it is brutal, and it is uh, it, it pulls no punches. And I've learned uh, quite a bit about um, the culture of kitchens, at least how culture a snapshot of cultures of kitchens in the year 2000. It is fascinating and raw, and a ton of fun. And for th- those of you who um, appreciate Anthony Bourdain as a TV guy, as the kind of guy who's sort of this very open-minded, seasoned older older gentleman who was willing to take you on around the world with him as he tastes the food of the world will 
see this as an origin story. How does one become that guy? This book kind of explains that. And uh, if you're missing Anthony Bourdain, it's a really, really good read and a reminder of why he was so special. And I wasn't familiar with it being a, there being a movie adaptation, uh, Peter, but there was a extremely short-lived Fox TV adaptation from 2005 starring a young Bradley Cooper as an Anthony Bourdain stand-in. I remember it's, it lasted for about 13 episodes before it was canceled, but I remember watching that back in the day. Huh, was it any good? It was okay. Uh, I, I haven't watched it since then, when, you know, that was 13 years ago. <laughs> but I think it's interesting, though, that Bradley Cooper has starred in that uh, Kitchen Confidential, the quickly canceled uh, Chef TV series, and he starred in Burnt, the Chef movie that nobody saw. So I think Bradley Cooper just really wanted to star in something <laughs> food-related, and neither, neither quite worked out for him. Well, that's too bad. Uh, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, I'll start this off. I uh, binge-watched the whole first season of Justin Willman's Netflix series, Magic for Humans. Uh, this came out, uh, I think, a week ago or two weeks ago. And this is – it is a magic TV show, but it's it's more uh, – it's different than, like, you know, David Copperfield or David Blaine. He's going around in kind of almost like – encountering people in their everyday life and bringing I don't want to say prank magic but bringing magic to unsuspecting people uh one of the best segments uh, I I retweeted uh a couple days ago uh, I'll link to it in the show show notes is uh one where he uh convinces a person that they are invisible um it, it's very hard to explain it's very convoluted but uh the it, it's it's more about the reactions of the people uh, involved in this than actually the magic, even though the magic is pretty great. Uh, if I have one criticism of it is uh, they go for this breakneck uh, editing kind of, they're trying to keep it, uh, you know, speedy and light. But uh, when you do that with a magic show, it, it feels like they're hiding things and you're not getting to see everything. Uh, so that would be my only complaint. But that's on Netflix now, uh, Magic for Humans. And Justin Wolman is a great magician. Uh, I think he's, uh, yeah, next month he's starting uh, a residency at the Hollywood uh, Roosevelt Hotel, uh, which we wrote about on the site. I'll, I'll link that also in the show notes. I also, uh, on Friday, after hearing about it for, you know, what, eight months I've I've been talk about this movie searching. I finally went to the theater, used my AMC A list to see Searching, and uh, my girlfriend Kitcher was like, "What is this movie? I'm not sure I want to see this." I, I think she had seen like part of a trailer, um, and uh, we saw in a packed crowd. I was surprised at how many people were in there. It turns out there was only nine screens in the country that were nine or, or something like that, a limited amount of screens in the country. So it was a packed crowd and. Uh, Boy, this movie is so clever. The use, uh, if, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, uh, the movie takes place on a computer screen. It follows a dad search for his missing daughter. Um, it is very much a mystery uh, kind of uh, setup. And um, the twists and turns it takes, I wasn't expecting. Uh, it's so uh, so yeah, so clever, filled with heart. Uh, I highly recommend everybody out there go see it and don't watch the trailer. Not that the trailer spoils too much, but but I, I think it shows a little too much. Uh, I, I think you don't want to know where the story is going. Just uh, you know, search your you know movie listings for searching and go try to see it. Uh, be uh, yeah, and uh, I really think it's 
right now it's in my top three of the year. So uh, thank you, Ben, for recommending that. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And, and yeah, for everybody else, the movie opens wide this Friday on August 31st. So go check it out. Yeah. And uh, after going to see that Jim Henson exhibit, uh, my girlfriend Ketra had said that she had never seen Muppets Take Manhattan. So uh, we went home and we watched that, and I had not seen this movie in a number of years. Um, it, it's interesting how much uh, – it's kind of like this episodic uh, story. Like, it's not a movie in a three-act structure as you would see today, and it's you know Frank Oz directing it, and it's, it's, it's just so much clever – uh, I wonder when people watch these Muppet movies how much they think about this. I guess if it's done right, you aren't thinking about this. But I'm watching every scene admiring how, you know, they are doing the puppeteering, how they are creating scenes where you see their full bodies, how, you know, they place people in certain areas. Like, I guess it's the same thing that attracts me to, like, Imagineering in the theme parks or even magic um, because it's just so clever and it's like a puzzle and uh, to, to accomplish all that. And maybe that's why maybe I enjoyed uh, uh, Happy Time Murders a little bit more than, than others, like seeing, you know, puppets and hot tubs and, you know, all sorts of things. Like, it, it, there's a cleverness to, like, how, how do you accomplish these things um, in a practical way? Uh, but anyways, Muppets Taking Manhattan, uh, very enjoyable. Uh, one thing that did hit me is that movie kind of like just ends. Do you know what I mean? Like they have that like big Broadway sequence at the end and the, the, the wedding. I hope I'm not spoiling this movie for anybody, but I, I feel like it's iconic and uh, whatever. And it just like ends. Like it, it's very, uh, very weird. Uh, I don't think they would get away with that today. I feel like they would have to have like uh, an epilogue scene of some kind. Um, and uh, lastly, I started binge watching the HBO series Succession, uh, which is great. Uh, it's about uh, a man uh, and his family. He, he he's kind of like I guess the Rupert Murdoch of 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 that world and he is uh getting older and he's going to have to give up his, the reins of his whole empire which includes news networks movies theme parks and um it's all about the family kind of like uh their struggle to try to get control of the whole thing and it's uh it's i don't know how to describe it it's, it's kind of like a dark comedy but it, it's also a melodrama it's it's very compelling and it's it's the kind of thing i uh i didn't really find out about until recently uh when slash Filmcast did a review i i just was out of my radar and um it's definitely a kind of show that i feel like rewards binge watching i i don't think i would enjoy this as much seeing it week to week so uh if you have not checked out succession on uh hbo i would say definitely check that out i think the whole season is on uh, hbo on demand uh yeah so uh let's go on to chris what have you been watching uh, I finally got to see uh, Lizzie, which is a film I really wanted to see at Sundance, but then I was unable to go to Sundance due to uh, health reasons. And um, it stars Kristen Stewart and Chloe Sevigny, and it's about uh, you know, Lizzie Borden and you know, the infamous murders of her, her father and her stepfather. And I, I really liked it. This has been getting kind of mixed reviews. I know Ben saw it at Sundance and he really liked it, but I've seen – other than that, I've seen mostly really sort of mixed – sort of reviews of it, but I, I really liked it. Um, I do think some of the performances, like Chloe Sevigny's performance is too modern. Like she never seems like she's someone in 
the late 1800s. She just seems like she's acting like someone from now. But uh, beyond that, I, I don't know. It, it was not exactly what I was expecting because it's a, it's a very strange sort of movie and it, it plays out. I mean, it plays out how you would expect it to play out because I feel like everyone knows the story about Lizzie Borden and all that stuff. But the way it sort of ends, it ends on this very melancholy uh, sort of regretful, sorrowful note that I wasn't really kind of expecting. And it really it really got to me. So uh, that comes out in October, I believe. I got a screener of it and I I really liked it. and I also watched the I, I finished the new season, the upcoming season of BoJack Horseman, and I'm technically uh, embargoed from giving a review. But I will say, if you if you've liked the other seasons of BoJack Horseman, you will like this one. It is, uh, it's it's what you would expect from a new season of BoJack Horseman. Um, that comes out uh, next month, I believe, September. Very cool. Uh, ben, what have you been watching? So when I was on the plane, I watched The Wild One. Uh, the the flight sele- or the uh, movie selection on British Airways was not the best, but the, a lot of uh, airlines will have old movies. And I normally take the, uh, the opportunity to watch classics that I've never seen uh, on the plane because you're sort of locked in. You can't really, you know, get distracted too much. And, and I always feel like that's a good opportunity to um, to just like, you know, sort of bear down and, and watch things that I might not otherwise uh, get a chance to check out. Um, so this Marlon Brando movie called The Wild One is what I watched, and it's from 1953. And uh, if anybody watched uh, Twin Peaks The Return, um, the character of Wally Brando, who is played by Michael Sarah, was dressed like uh, Brando's character in this movie, which is uh, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say part of the reason that I wanted to see this just because <laughs> I had never seen it before. And, and that uh, Michael Sarah's performance in Twin Peaks is so ridiculous. But uh, yeah, anyway, The Wild One, it's um, it's pretty good. It's it's, uh, you know, one of those movies that it, it basically Brando plays a, a motorcycle like a, a the leader of a biker gang. And apparently this is one of the first movies to really examine uh, you know, gang culture in that way, or at least biker gang culture. Um, and it's about this group that basically just rides into this city and, uh, or the small town rather. And Brando is leading the charge and all of his gang members basically just like wreak havoc on this town. And of course, you know, things go bad and he falls in love with the, a girl who runs the cafe, the, the diner kind of shop area in the town. And, uh, and yeah, it's very much like a, like a classic sort of James Dean esque uh, story. So yeah, if, if you'd never seen the wild one, I'd recommend it. It's, uh, I mean, Brando's good in just about anything. Um, I also saw, and, and, and you saw it as intended on a airplane, <laughs> a small screen on an airplane. Yeah. Christopher Nolan would be proud. Um, yeah. I, I also saw once uh, the movie from 2007. It's a, an Irish movie. I, I mentioned on a recent episode of the show that my wife and I are planning a trip to um, Iceland and Ireland. We're going to be doing that uh, sometime in, in uh, the end of September. And so uh, once it takes place in Dublin and I wanted to watch this movie just because I had never seen it before and I'm trying to watch some movies and TV shows that are set in those locations. So maybe we can go check out some of the filming locations and stuff like that. Uh, Once is directed by John Carney. It was also written by him. And he's the guy who made movies like Begin Again and Sing Street. And Once is his first movie as far as I know. I should probably check on that. I'll check on that in just a second. But um, 
it's it's basically like the proto story that that he is told in every other subsequent movie that he's made. So Sing Street came out in 2016. If you've not seen that movie, please do. It's amazing. And watching Sing Street first and then going back and watching once, it's really just like watching I don't know, like a like a bricklayer lay the foundation of a building that you have later driven past, or, you know that that kind of thing, where it's like, oh wow, yeah, that this is the exact. Um, it, it's basically the same plot, but just with slightly different characters, and uh, and you can really see that he has um, honed down that formula and and become uh, he's sort of perfected it with Sing Street, I think. So once is good. It's a little shaggy. It's it's clearly shot with very little money, and Sing Street, I think, is like the the ideal of what that kind of movie can be. So I just wanted to give a quick shout out to that, and then yeah. also um, and, and, and that that wasn't his first film. He had a film called On the Edge in two thousand one that uh, no one has seen so okay okay yeah thank you for checking me on that um and then uh so iceland and ireland game of thrones filming locations uh often take place across both of those countries so i've my wife and i've been re-watching all of game of thrones from the very beginning um partially because of the trip and then partially because we wanted to be completely you know refreshed on the show when it finally comes back for its final season next year and um guys i, I mean i just want to say season four of game of thrones is I would put it up there with any season of any television show in terms of like pound for pound, bang for your buck. This is some of the best TV ever produced. Um, I, I know that I, me, I, I'm not sure about like the temperature of Game of Thrones fans as a whole, but I feel like as the series has gone on, I've kind of fallen out of love with it a little bit. But watching it from the beginning and seeing how everything pays off in season four that was set up in the first three seasons is just, um, it reminded me of why I really loved the show in the first place and the books as well. I mean, it's like, that that is the peak of game of thrones to me is season four beginning to end it's like every episode <clears throat> excuse me every episode is like there's some iconic <laughs> death or iconic moment or like super memorable line or um something in in that season uh jacob do you do you have any fond memories of season four specifically i know you're a big game of thrones guy season four is the adaptation of the best section of the best book in the series and it knows it it is confident and brilliant and exciting, and the, and the show is still good after season four, but this is where it peaks. It's never this good again. You are correct. <laughs> well, very cool. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Well, since I was on vacation, I didn't have to watch much, but we were skimming around TV channels on our hotel TV, uh, which had motion smoothing turned on, and the colors were all off, and the remote was a universal one that didn't let us change that. So we weren't going to watch anything serious, but then Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade came on, and we got sucked into it, even with the terrible television, like genuinely awful picture. And that movie is just really good. <laughs> just straight up good. Raised the Lost Ark is a better film as uh, more nuance and more of a structure and more uh, character and storytelling. But Last Crusade is just a series of perfect action scenes. It is a series of escalating um, set pieces that find ways that keep on topping themselves and topping themselves and topping themselves in ways that are so much fun. I think Spielberg doesn't give enough credit for how he builds his action sequences like Buster Keaton used to build comedy routines. It's just one thing tops another, tops another, tops another with setup and payoff and setup and payoff. It's just marvelous to behold. And 
I know Ben, you've said in the past this is your favorite Indiana Jones movie, right? Yeah, I, I really um, I go back and forth between uh, this one and Raiders in terms of like which one I think is better because I I really love Last Crusade and I mean today I think right now I think Last Crusade is the better movie but I mean again ask me tomorrow and I could change my mind but the addition of Sean Connery is so fantastic the chemistry between them is so great and like you mentioned all of the set pieces are just brilliant in this movie. And John Williams' score is so great for this film, too. I, I feel like the score in Last Crusade is better than the one in Raiders. Um, the opening few minutes with River Phoenix, where he plays young Indiana Jones, is like the best prequel origin story that I've ever seen. It's so concise and like locked in, and that's all you need. And, and you don't need a full movie dedicated to young Indiana Jones. It's just this first, whatever, 15 minutes of the film. Well, George um, Lucas thought we needed a whole series. But. I know, but you don't. You just need the <laughs> beginning of Last Crusade, man. It's so perfect. Um, yeah, it, it's it's terrific. Yeah, I agree with the score. I think that the Grail theme, uh, in particular, maybe my favorite piece of Indiana Jones music at all, overall. But also, one of the things I realized on my vacation is um, part of being an adult means realizing you have to spend your entire day of every part of your vacation out and about trying to force yourself to have fun. So we spent hours at a time in the hotel room just relaxing, just being away from it all. And that meant getting stuck into a Shark Tank marathon for way, way, way too long. Yes. <laughs> Shark Tank is a show I've, I, I don't want, I hesitate to call it guilty pleasure, but I have so much fun watching it. It's a show where entrepreneurs pitch their ideas to a bunch of millionaires who proceed to crap all over them or fight to give them money and, and invest in them. And I think it's so much fun to watch. It's junk food, but for me, it's really well-produced junk food. And Peter, I know you're a big fan, so I'll hand a baton to you. Oh, I'm such a huge fan. I just love the personalities that are involved there. I love how... Uh, it's, you know, it, it, it's funny. The the things that have made the most money on Shark Tank are, are the most ridiculous things ever. I think, like, Scrub Daddy, which is, like, the scrub, uh, the, the sponge that's uh, shaped almost like an emoji. <laughs> like, like, that's, like, it, it's made, like, like, so much money. And it's just, like, amazing some of the stuff that they turn down that ends up being becoming huge. Uh, I don't know. I just love hearing the the reasoning uh for, for why something could be a hit or why you know why, why it's not worth investing in uh I, I just i don't know i just have so much fun with that show even though i know i don't know i think it also shows you that even like the smartest guys in the room don't know anything do you know what i mean sometimes <laughs> yeah although i will say this much though um if you're on that show and barbara corcoran makes you an offer and you turn it down you're a fool she's clearly the only one you can trust clearly <laughs> I don't know. I think Mark is smart with things, but I don't know. Okay, anyways, uh, let's move on to HT. HT, what have you been watching? So this weekend I got the chance to see uh, yet another rom-com. This is – we're three for three uh, this this month actually but because after Crazy Bitch Asians, uh, we had on Netflix to all the boys I loved before. And then um, in theaters, Juliet Naked, which uh, is based off of a Nick Hornby novel. Nick Hornby is the author behind books such as About a Boy or High Fidelity and starring Rose Byrne. Uh, Ethan Hawke and Chris O'Dowd. So Juliet Naked is kind of more of like an indie rom-com uh, about a, a woman named Annie who's played by Rose Byrne who is a long-suffering girlfriend of this uh, guy who's a huge fanboy of a sort of disappeared rock star who hasn't been seen for decades. And after she writes a scathing review to sort of get back at her boyfriend, the uh, aforementioned rock star appears and starts to uh, 
have an email correspondence with her. And that rock star, of course, is Ethan Hawke. Uh, I'm a bit of an Ethan Hawke fan, if you don't know, because of my love for the Before trilogy and just like an admiration for the kind of work that he's been doing, especially in the latter half of his career. And I was really excited to see him take on a rom-com role, which we haven't really seen, not even in his peak in the 90s when he was sort of the um, the Gen X heartthrob. Uh, he kind of did a lot of more sort of... Uh, uh, I don't know the word, like maybe acidic type of roles. And uh, he here is just like, it's a very delightful, very sweet, a little bit melancholy film. And his role especially, he has kind of an arc that has that deals with like regrets and um, his mistakes as sort of a, a once uh, drug abusing alcoholic uh, rocker. But it's a really great romance and really great rom-com. And I'm just so happy that the rom-com is coming back. I hope it is anyways. If we're three for three in August, then hopefully this is the start of a new sort of um, renaissance or revival, at least for the rom-com. Very cool. And, and you've been reading Sharp Objects and watching Sharp Objects. Yes, I have. No spoilers. So Sharp Objects. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sharp Objects had its miniseries finale this past Sunday, and I was absolutely awestruck by this finale. It, I will try not to get into spoilers. I will, um, but it's such a good, just like gut punch of an of an episode, and it was really the perfect cap to what I think was one of my favorite. Um, pieces of television that I've seen this year. Granted, I haven't seen a lot of TV this year that I haven't like reviewed, such as Handmaid's Tale, but I really enjoyed Sharp Objects. Even when it got a little bit slower towards the middle, I felt I thought that it was a perfect sort of moody, atmospheric, gothic tale that really delved into the interiority of like of female suffering and PTSD and trauma and abuse. And I really love that it we showed this kind of um story in a mystery uh, crime show, essentially, which is something unusual, I think. And I really like, too, that even though the finale like was basically centered around this huge twist and it was about solving the mystery of, of who killed all these girls in the small town of Wind Gap, I felt like Sharp Objects was kind of the like anti-mystery box show. Uh, it kind of shatters the concept of the mystery box and like the cultural obsession we have with treating stories like puzzles to be solved. So like whatever clues or, or um, sort of words or um, hidden details are in the show don't really make up any kind of foreshadowing towards a, the killer, for example. It's all about hinting at the the current state of um, mental state of um, Amy Adams character, Camille and Amy Adams just is so good in the finale. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, she just, she gives just like such a great uh, turmoiled. Uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm freaking out. Cause I loved her so much in this, <laughs> in this, in this episode in this series in general. I hope that she gets an Emmy nomination for this and perhaps makes her way to an EGOT. I don't know. That would be great. <laughs> um, but yeah, Sharp Objects, if you haven't caught this, uh, the entire series has aired, and I highly recommend watching it. It's, um, I know you've only started the book, but uh, w which, do you th which, are you, which are you enjoying more? Well, the book is definitely more sort of um, – it's less fragmented and dreamy than the series. I think the series made a really interesting and smart choice of kind of setting itself as uh, separately from the book as possible. And you do get sort of um, Camille's inner thoughts and inner monologues in the book, but there's something uh, 
it it feels more clear minded the the book does and i think for now i like the series better but they're pretty they're on pretty even footing very cool okay let's move on to what we've been eating i'll 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 quickly start this off and say that uh i have been on a diet i have joined brad and uh joined on the ad- adventure towards weight loss uh uh i think when we first started this podcast i I was on the keto diet and I I lost uh, something like 45 pounds. Uh, I have since gained all of that back um, and I am not fitting in my clothes. It's it's one of those points that like like I either had to buy larger clothes or I need to lose weight. And like that is uh, a scary point. To hit, I think, um, but and I'm making a go at it. I, I've been on diet for I think the last week and a half. I've I've lost ten pounds so far. I know that is mostly uh, probably water weight and like all that you know food that just kind of sits in your stomach. Um, but I am feeling a lot better already, and uh, I I am ready to get back down there and to, uh, closer towards my goal uh, because I, I I am not comfortable right now. And uh, I'll keep you guys updated uh, throughout the weeks on the water cooler of my, uh, my adventure and struggles in weight loss. Uh, Jacob, what have you been eating? Uh, while you were off making wise <laughs> choices, I was off making bad choices. The Riverwalk uh, in San Antonio is famous for its many, many restaurants, uh, most of which are loud and full of um, very good, but often very fast-produced um, junk food-type Mexican food and Tex-Mex. So this time, my wife and I decided to be a little off the beaten path and try some stuff that was not maybe not classier, but um, was different than the usual fare. So we tried La Gloria, which is actually not in the Riverwalk. It's in a new area called The Pearl in San Antonio. And The Pearl is an old brewery. It's the old brewery building and all the associated buildings around the the administration building, the bottling building, all this massive complex has been abandoned for years, is now a bunch of restaurants and hotels and spas and shops. But it still looks like an old brewery, so it's very cool. It's a really beautifully designed area. It, it turned into a park. There was like a farmer's market. There was kids playing in fountains. It was amazing. And one of the restaurants was called La Gloria, which is a uh, place specializing in Mexican street food, but in sort of a casual dining setting. And as somebody who eats a lot of Tex-Mex, you know, sort of Mexican food that's been influenced by Southwestern um, concepts and cooking, uh, I always, I'm always surprised when I eat actual Mexican food because it's very different. Like, for example, I ordered queso thinking I'd get a bowl of cheese, and I got a massive boiling thing of tomato sauce covered in, in shredded cheese. And it was delicious, and it was amazing, but it was, you know, two steps away from what I, what I traditionally associate as Mexican food in, in the back of my brain as somebody who always eats Tex-Mex. So La Gloria was very good, and I enjoyed it a lot. But our favorite uh, visit for the week, or the weekend, a place you've been to before, maybe my favorite restaurant in all of San Antonio, is the Esquire Tavern. It is a bar and restaurant that's been on the Riverwalk since 1933. It's the oldest bar on the Riverwalk. And it is, when you walk in, it's very small compared to most modern restaurants, very cramped. Um, There's not a lot of seating, so I recommend calling ahead. But it is... It has that prohibition era vibe. It has is very dimly lit. It has these old school booths, a very long, long bar. It takes up most of the restaurant, and the cocktail menu is an adventure. Like if you're if you're a drinker who like likes sophisticated, strange, out there drinks, uh, the cocktail menu at uh, the Esquire is nothing short of astonishing. I had tried some really out there things, things that uh, were 
just unlike any cocktails I've had before. And I'm looking at their website right now. It looks like they're nominated for this year at the James Beard Award for Best Bar, and I can understand why. Because, oh, wow. like, you, you you walk in there and you open up the cocktail menu, and I'll ask the waiter every time I'm in there or the waitress, "What's good? What what's new? What is good with this food?" And they have a recommendation, and it's always fantastic. And sometimes you get like a massive, crazy, over large drink, and sometimes you get a uh, tiny, tiny, tiny glass with only this only half full of alcohol, but you take a tiny sip and you realize, oh, wow, I don't need any more than this. This is strong enough. But uh, the food's also delicious. It's very much tavern foods. It's burgers, it's sandwiches, but it's phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal food. And if you're in San Antonio and you have some money to spend, it's not a cheap restaurant. Like it's, it's, we, our, My wife and I had a for four cocktails, uh, an appetizer, and two entrees. It was over $100. Um so come with some money, but it's worth it. It's really one of my favorite restaurants in the world, honestly. See, I only know the river. I've never been to San Antonio, so I only know the river walk from the 1984 movie Cloak and Dagger. Have you seen that? <laughs> I've seen clips. For the, I've seen the river walk clips on YouTube. Yeah. Well, you should check it out. I mean, it's probably not a good movie. It's been many years. but uh, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that, Peter, because I was going to. I've been thinking about that the entire time that Jacob has been talking about San Antonio. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that, that that's exactly how I picture the Riverwalk. It's probably nothing of what it looks like today, but that's what I, I see it in my mind. Uh, but, J- Jacob, uh, you were the only person to have uh, something in what we've been playing. So uh, what have you been playing? Yeah, about two weeks ago I talked about Dead Cells, the roguelike side-scrolling action-adventure game on Nintendo Switch, also every other platform. I'm still playing it. I'm playing it constantly to the point where I need to find a new game because Dead Cells has replaced all other video games for me. It is that good. It is that fulfilling. It is that satisfying. Uh, And $25 may seem like a steep price for an indie game, but I think I put over 100 hours in this game by now, and I'm not tired of it. I want to play it right now. I want to ditch work and play Dead Cells. It's that good. Uh, So I talked about it more on a previous podcast. I won't go into detail here, but it is easily my favorite game of the year so far and we'll see how that how that goes when things wrap up but it's so good it's so much fun but on a new recommendation uh i played keep talking and nobody explodes which was previously a vr game but recently came nintendo switch and the way it works is one player holds the, the portable switch controller the one with the screen on it and they have a bomb in front of them a bomb that they can rotate and explore and full of all kinds of traps and gadgets and the other players all have their phones with open to a PDF or a printout, which is the bomb diffusal manual, which is like 20 something odd pages of arcanely written, hard to navigate rules for disarming bombs. <laughs> so one player can only see the bomb. The other players cannot see the bomb, but can only see the instructions for the bomb. And they have to, and they have to guide me, guide the other player in how to disarm it by reading the instructions, finding how to do it and communicating clearly. So the bomb player has to describe what he's seeing the other players have to, have to correspond with their notes, and you have to work together in perfect unison to beat the clock. You only have like three or five minutes uh, to defuse the bomb, and then there's a lot to do uh, to make it happen. It is a great party game. It is. I feel like a lot of party games are fun because they're chaos, and this game <laughs> fulfills that. It is chaos. People are yelling and screaming. But well, it's also what, what is the percentage though? Like, how many times did you fail <laughs> to save the world? Uh, we uh, failed a lot. We also succeeded a lot. Like, I feel like it was a learning experience. We were playing through. My family and I were playing through the campaign mode. It's also a custom game mode where you can sort of set up your own custom game based on how you want to play it. But we made it about 10 levels into the, into the uh, campaign mode. And we would fail a, a level maybe two or three times sometimes, but then we'd sort of figure it out. We would um, 
jump back in, sort of have a better idea of, of how different parts of the bomb worked, and we would figure it out. And but the thing about it is, like, it, it, there's no luck in this game. It's all about it is pure deduction, pure communication, pure reading comprehension, and and talking it out. So even when people are yelling and screaming and things are going wrong, uh, the game's never unfair, and that's what I loved about it. It's never it's never putting you down for sake of putting you down. It's always challenging you in ways I found really really refreshing. Well, very cool. Um, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. Uh, I'm not going to do the goodbyes because we've got too many people on here. Uh, but you can find more of all of our work on SlashFilm.com. You can find all the uh, all, you can find the story, the Star Wars story, linked in the show notes and on SlashFilm.com. Uh, Slash Film Daily is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, as long uh, just alongside Slash Film. Uh, dot com. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And uh, please leave your name, general geographic location, in case we mention the email on the air. Uh, please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.